Litcast Slovakia, the podcast about Slovak literature in English. Hello, welcome to Litcast Slovakia number 12. I'm Julia Sherwood and my host today is Sarah Hinlicky Wilson, a Lutheran pastor, publisher, editor and blogger. Sarah grew up in New York and New Jersey and after earning a PhD in theology, she spent eight years working at the Institute for Ecumenical Research in Strasbourg, France. And since 2018, she has lived in Mitaka, Japan, and serves as a pastor at the Tokyo Lutheran Church. She has published six books, edited several more, written over 200 articles for popular and scholarly journals, and for the past two years has been reviewing Slovak novels in English on her blog. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to Litka Slovakia. How's life in Japan right now? Oh, hello, Julia. It's such a thrill and an honor to be here. And life in Japan is pretty good. We've had a much easier time of it with the pandemic than Britain or the US. So uh, we've never were entirely cooped up like you were. And the infection rate has remained low. So we did have a period of schools and churches and restaurants being closed, but we were never really locked in or locked down. Oh, well, that's really great to hear that somewhere, some some place in the world is doing well. We're about to head into another lockdown, although they're saying they're not going to do that. But the infection rates are definitely rising. We're entering the second wave. There's no doubt about that. But let's not talk about that. Judging from your name and your CV, you have Slovak roots. So can you tell us a little bit more about your heritage and about the memoir you have written about your year in Slovakia? And uh, can you tell us when it's coming out? Um, yes, you are right. My former maiden name, now my middle name, Hinlicky, is an Americanization of Hnilitsky. It was not an Ellis Island move by an immigration official, actually, but my grandfather and his brothers, who I gather got really tired of Americans having no idea what to do with a name that started H-N-I. So they just switched the letters to H-I-N, and that's how we all became Hinlickys. Um, I myself am now third, maybe even would count as a fourth generation Slovak American on my father's side. It was my great grandparents who emigrated from the US in the early 20th century. Um, but it really, that ethnic identity lasted much longer into my family story than I think is normal. On my mom's side, it was, you know, we're, we're German and Danish on that side, but it was never as important. Probably the two world wars had something to do with the German part, but the Slovak part stayed really important. My grandfather was a pastor for Slovak speaking Lutheran churches in America all the way into the early 80s. So my father grew up in a very strongly identified ethnic environment of Slovaks, even though English was his native language language. And for me, as a young person, I think searching for my identity, growing up in a small town in New York State, you know, I, I wanted to be something more, something different, something exotic. And the Slovak heritage was there at hand. So from an early age, I thought of myself as a Slovak in the delusional way that only Americans can. 
<laughs> and then, then when I turned, um, when I was 17, my family actually moved to Slovakia. My father was invited to teach at the Lutheran seminary there. So our whole family uprooted and moved to Slovakia. That was in 1993, so the year of Slovakia's independence and only four years after the Velvet Revolution. So I, at the time, interpreted this as my homecoming at last. And so my uh, memoir, which should be coming out next year, is the story of, of what happens when a, a Slovak-American four generations in thinks that she is going to the home country and all the uh, hilarious and heartbreaking adventures that followed thereon. Interesting. Uh, can I ask uh, how's your Slovak? Uh, it depends on what year you're asking about. When I was there, I got pretty good at chattering away um, about things like food and boys and religion, um, but I never really had a literary education in it, so so reading is a bit of a chore for me. I did work rather hard to uh, reanimate my Slovak when I was working on my memoir full-time a couple years ago, but then I moved to Japan, and so learning Japanese has taken precedence over maintaining my Slovak, I'm, I'm sad to say. Well, there is a limit, uh, I suppose, to how much <laughs> brain can hold. I can understand that. I think that. so. <laughs> Well, Magdalena Mollock and I were working on our website, slovakliterature.com. Uh, I was looking for English language reviews of Slovak books in English translation, which are quite rare. And I stumbled across your blog, which covers quite a broad range of subjects, from cookery through theology to Slovak fiction. And I was fascinated to learn that a couple of years ago, you decided to read every Slovak book you could find in English translation. And since then, you've reviewed 29 Slovak novels, plus some children's books and a few other novels relating to Slovakia. So can you tell us what made you embark on this extraordinary project? <laughs> well, I'm glad you find it extraordinary. Um, so when I was writing my memoir, I needed to go back and learn the history of Slovakia for real. I had, you know, sort of absorbed the random bits and pieces you get from living in another country. But I, I really needed to, to dig down deep into the history, which was great and fascinating. But one of the surprising things I discovered is what a young language Slovak is, at least modern Slovak in its official written and spoken form. Obviously, there's predecessor dialects for a long time back. So that kind of made me curious, like, oh, if Slovak is so young, what kind of literature has it even had the time to produce? And then, but of course, I'm reading it in translation in English. So that was led to a second question, which is, of this limited body of young Slovak's literature, what has and for what reason merited enough attention to get translated into English? And I suppose the third part was, um, while we hear many calls for uh, attention to oppressed or marginalized or forgotten uh, cultures and languages of the world, I think any of us who are fans of Slovakia or Central and Eastern Europe know that somehow these areas never merit attention. <laughs> Slovakia and its neighbors are just continually overlooked. And I think Slovakia in, particularly, uh, in particular in comparison to its Czech siblings. So I suppose there was a certain kind of uh, irritated sense of injustice that I wanted to uh, give Slovak literature in English its due attention that it had never really gotten. And that's where the whole thing started. I think this is very similar to my motivation for translating Slovak books into English. This feeling that it's really unfair that uh, 
it's so little known compared to Czech, but also to many other. When I look, for example, at the, at the Baltic literatures, they do seem to get a lot more attention than Slovak. So, yeah. yes, so we're on a similar quest here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also, when I started translating, uh, I was really curious to see what else has been translated. And I tried to put together a, a list of Slovak books in English translation. And some of it was really uh, almost like a detective work. And uh, mm -hmm. similarly, your, your Slovak novel project has involved an element of detective work. As, uh, and you have actually unearthed some books that uh, I never came across. That, that don't feature in any published lists. So can you share with us some of your more unusual finds? Sure. So I, I started with um, the recently deceased Professor Martin Votruba's list, which is great and includes a lot of stuff beyond novels like poetry and nonfiction and and went from there. Uh, but I would say the two most exciting discoveries I have made are the Artia Publishing House and Kristina Royova. So I'll, I'll take those in order. So Artia appears to have been a publisher started during the 50s and 60s with the explicit mandate of publishing translations of Czech and Slovak literature into English, German, and other languages. And I guess, I'm guessing, the idea was to show the rest of the world that even under communism, good art was being produced. Um, I would love to know what became of Artia, where the files are, who owns the right now, rights now. So if anyone out there listening knows, please let me and Yulia know. <laughs> this, this would be a great uh, uh, fulfillment of my detective quest. But anyway, um, so I found out that although, once again, it was heavily Czech, there were three novels published by um, by Slovak authors that got translated into English, um, two by Jasik and one by Jasenski. And uh, just trying to unearth why those three passed, I think it's because they were um, critical of pluralistic democracy and of the Nazi period is why they, they passed the test and and made it through the story of the translators is interesting too because two of them were translated by rosemary kavan who kind of did the opposite of you yulia she left britain uh, married a czech and identified with the communist cause and ended up working for artia as a translator though in the end she also had to flee after the the prague spring and she wrote a memoir called love and freedom about her experiences though i i, I don't see that she fully recognized how how wrong the system she had given her life to was and the other was george theiner who um also ended up in britain i believe and he ended up being quite a cataloger of czech literature and the index of censored books so again someone who was originally part of this ardia project to put czech and slovak literature in the worlds but ended up having to leave the country that had sponsored the project so that that was quite an interesting find uh, the other really interesting thing I discovered was this um, Lutheran pietist um, woman named Kristina Royova. She and her sisters were, uh, she, they were both daughters of um, a Lutheran pastor. So I kind of like that because I'm the daughter of a Lutheran pastor as well. <laughs> and from a, a Slovak background, um, they had a profound religious experience when they were young. And they went on to found a number of charitable undertakings, orphanage, hospital, the first old folks home in Slovakia. 
And Christina in particular wrote tons and tons of novels and stories and devotional literature of all kinds. And she was not on any collection of um, Slovak literature in English at all. So the way I found her is I was trying to track down another book and uh, I found an immigration archive in Minnesota uh, at the University of Minnesota, and I wrote to try to get access to this other book. And the librarian said, oh, by the way, we have another book by a Slovak here, or, you know, and told me her name, and uh, it was Kristina Rojova. And I was like, huh, I've never seen that name before. And then I started searching uh, using Zlaty Fond, which is a great Slovak uh, it's a collection of public domain writings in the Slovak language and discover this incredibly prolific woman. And they claim she is the most translated Slovak writer of all time. Probably helps that her writings are both pious and short. <laughs> so it doesn't take much effort to get them into another language. But anyway, I've been tracking down her books. I think I've gotten my hands on five of them now. There's at least one more that I found out about, but the only available copy is about $300 right now, so I'm hoping the price drops or another <laughs> another copy surfaces at some points. Um, but there, too, I had fun trying to track down the translators of her writings and a, another interesting character who went from, from uh, Bohemia to New York to Chile, then back to the Czech Republic again, or Czechoslovakia as it was at the time. I'm just going to say that there's really an interesting write-up of this on your blog, of, of your detective quest and uh, the story of the translators well so I, I really recommend everyone to read that thanks thanks and i just want to say if anyone out there has yashik's dead soldiers don't sing please scan it and send me and yulia a copy <laughs> i can't find it anywhere and uh, just to go back you said uh, you discovered five books by christina royova in english or just five books by her in general no just five in english i don't know she has Amazing. like 50 or 60 in slovak the slovak wikipedia page assuming it's trustworthy lists them and there's just a staggering number that really is amazing so uh, now to come back to more contemporary fiction uh, i have to confess that i don't always agree with your overall conclusions about the books but uh, even where i don't i always find your reviews very perceptive and think that you make some extremely valid and interesting points. And it seems to me that the books that you value most are those with a clear storyline and action more than those that indulge in literary experiment experimentation. So would you mind expanding on your criteria and tell us what for you constitutes a good novel? Yeah, this is a very fair question. You know, when I undertook to review all Slovak novels in English, that meant the only criterion was that it was written by a Slovak, not not genre <laughs> in any way. So um, it's true, I'm not particularly fond of metafiction or literary experimentation, so I do tend to be harder on those. Though I would like to say I'm also not fond of pot boilers without any moral or psychological depth, but so far Slovaks have not written that kind of novel, so I haven't had an opportunity to equally criticize the, the opposite extreme. Well, they have. Um, they, they just haven't been translated. <laughs> oh, do they? Okay, oh, yeah. you'd know better than I would. Yeah. <laughs> I, probably what bugs me most, and this is by no means rest restricted to Slovak literary fiction, is a literary novel that uh, starts out being purely uh, reflective, experimental interior, and then at the end suddenly decides it needs to have a plot and then just kind of throws a bomb of action at the end that's entirely unearned. That that 
earns more ire than anything else. Um, so I, you know, I, I've, uh, said plainly on my blog, the ones I have not been crazy enough, crazy about on those grounds. Um, I'll, I'll name names at risk of offense. Um, Evergreen is by Vilikovsky, House of the Dead Man by Kristufek. Yulia, I don't know how you made it through translating that whole book. I hope you loved it because I didn't. Um, Seeing People Off by Benyova and The End of Freddy by Piszczanek. I None of those really did it for me. But among the literary novels in Slovak that I really did like were Gaudeamus by Ricard, Fleeting Snow by Vilikovsky, so the same author that I criticized in the last list, uh, Ilona by Yuranova, and The Equestrian by Kovalik. Those I all thought were fantastic. Well, I think we agree on some of those and maybe less on others, but uh, I think <laughs> this is really all a question of taste. So uh, That's so true, yeah. so true. And uh, also you uh, give ratings uh, on your blog on a scale of one to five, and only three books uh, that that you covered got five stars, and they're very, very different. So one is uh, Ladislav Mniaczko's Akochuti Mot, The Taste of Power, and Margita Figuli's Tri Gasztanowe Konie, Three Chestnut Horses, and Peter Piszczanek's Rivers of Babylon. So what was it about these three books that appealed to you so much? I will tell you that, but first I should say about my rating system, it is much more severe than your average Amazon user. So five means it's so good that I'll read it a second time and press it on someone who doesn't care about Slovakia otherwise. One usually means I kind of regret the lost minutes of my life reading the book, <laughs> but that means three is actually a pretty good rating for me. So uh, if any authors out there see they got a three and feel disappointed, you shouldn't. It's quite a compliment still. Okay. <laughs> um, for these three books, um, The Taste of Power is just an amazing character study of how someone who started out as a great hero turned into such a coward. And it's just this brilliant step-by-step, episode-by-episode demonstration of this inherently flawed communist system and how it just destroys all that is good and redeeming in humanity. But it's done in such a humane way. Uh, you would think it would be just purely taking apart this anti-hero, but it's through the lens of this photographer who's who's remembering his history and seeing how he just lost his humanity in the system. So I, I just thought that was one of the best best, most vivid illustrations of the ills of, of um, communist anthropology that I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. um, Three Chestnut Horses uh, is a, a lovely little book. It's really moving because you're set up for something that's going to be kind of naive and optimistic, but it really looks deeply into pain and trauma. Um, it talks deeply about the right and wrong uses of male sexuality. I think long before that was a standard topic of discourse popularly, um, it has this beautiful insight into going into suffering rather than around it in order to grow. And the female figure in it is, is really like a Christ figure. Usually women are more like Mary, the mother of God, or like Mary Magdalene. The character, in fact, is named Magdalene, but she's more like Christ than anything else. And it's so unusual to see a female Christ figure. Um, I, I, was, I was really moved by the story. And then uh, Rivers of Babylon, it's the first in, in the Rivers of Babylon trilogy. And um, 
the other two novels I thought kind of uh, fell apart narratively, but this first one is just a fantastically constructed story. It's so tight. It has these interlocking characters. And what for me made it particularly powerful is around this tight story is the backdrop of the revolution. And there's only one allusion to it in the whole entire book. So you couldn't you couldn't demonstrate more perfectly how little changed from before and after. And I find this is a recurring theme in, in novels written after the revolution is this great disappointment. And, but, but Peace Janiak here is still, this is early days. It's still, it's satiric critique of how, how much things have stayed the same. It's not this kind of depressive hopelessness that seems to characterize later post-revolutionary novels. Mm. And Pishchanek turned out to be also a great prophet because in, uh, in that main character, he's actually anticipated the figure of Vladimir Mechier, who hadn't come to power <laughs> when at the time of writing of the book. Uh, really is amazing. It is amazing. And so this actually takes me very neatly to my next question, which is going to be uh, about how important it is for you that the book uh, convey a sense of time and place it's set in. And what other books would you recommend to readers who would like to get acquainted with Slovak literature and get a sense of the country now and in the past? Yeah, ever since I can remember, I've been desperately curious about the whole wide world. So yes, a story with a strong sense of time and place is a huge plus for me. Um, you know, the thing is, with the Slovak novels in English, I'm not sure that I would have gotten as much out of them if I hadn't started with a deep historical dive into Slovakia's history first, because that gave me the, uh, you know, when Slovak writers are writing for themselves in a Slovak audience, they don't have to explain what normalization is, right? Mm. Or, or that they used to be part of the Kingdom of Hungary. That's just known. Um, and so, of course, you know, sometimes a translator will expand details, but you'd have to rewrite the book to fill it all in. So it really helped me to know this coming into it. So for instance, there's this, this really charming um, coming of age book called, it's called An English Don't Cry For Me by Yarunkova. And it's kind of like a Judy Bloom novel, but it's set in, you know, like kind of 1960-ish Bratislava. And there's all sorts of little details in it, including the, the, the protagonist's kind of naive perception of the world around her. For example, a question about whether uh, a girl in class who's not particularly smart but well connected politically will get into the high school of choice because she doesn't have to be good, she just has to be connected. So, you know, little details like that. Uh, I, I, those are, I think, um, a reader who didn't particularly know where this was coming from wouldn't get kind of the weight of a, a plot point like that. Um, so if for people who are maybe new to Slovak literature and trying to figure out where to start or what will be uh, most accessible to them, I would say for pre-communist Slovakia, Czechoslovakia, um, I would suggest Sigurd Hronsky's Jozef Mak, which is a study of a, a peasant in a village trying to make sense of the world around him with no education, no sense of history. He has no idea of the forces around him, but is trying to make his way in, you know, a kind of rural mountainous area of Slovakia. It's very vivid. Um, by the aforementioned Mnyachko, there's a book called Death is Called Engelchen, which is uh, 
for the World War II era, I would recommend it. It's, it centers particularly on the true story of the, the Nazi burning of a village of Plostina, um, which I think is in today's Czech Republic. And um, it, it focuses on the failed Slovak national uprising, which of course is a, is a really big, uh, well, the, the fact of it is a really big deal to Slovaks. The fact that it failed is perhaps not so loudly talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the, the Stalinist era, the taste of power, which we talked about already. And for normalization though, the Year of the Frog by Shimechka is really a really powerful portrait of the slow seeping despondency of the normalized world where nothing will ever change. It's not going to be terrible and torture, but there's also no hope and prospect. It's very powerful. And then for post-communists, I would say either The Equestrian by Kovalik, which I already mentioned, or Big Love by Bala. Both of those. Uh, the Equestrian is particularly good because it talks about how it's a narrative of a woman who realizes that the best time of her life was actually during communism, and you're not supposed to be happy about that. <laughs> and now that everything has changed, post-communist, what she loved most was taken away from her and she can't see any way forward. Uh, Bala's big love is a little bit more of a kind of depressive fog of being unable to work up the gumption to participate in a competitive system. But both of those, I think, really capture that malaise post-revolution. Well, thank you. That's quite a few uh, recommendations there. So we've got Jarunkova, Josef Ciger, Heronsky, Mnachko, Martin Milan Šimečka, Kovalik and Bala. So that's enough for people to get started really on Slovak literature. (laughs) And so uh, when can we expect your next review and uh, what book will it be on? Yeah, so on, uh, I think, September 29th, the next one is by Kristina Rojova again, uh-huh. because she's so prolific and well-translated. It's called Kept by a Mighty Hand. And then after that, I have uh, five more books already lined up to read and review. One of them is a brand new release. Uh, three are pre-communist works. Um, and finally, one is from this borderline category. I've slipped in a few times, which are Slovak novels in English, but not necessarily written or composed in Slovak. So this is another one. It's by a, a Slovak um, immigrant, possibly refugee, who came to the United States in 1948. I think he may have written the novel in Slovak in America, but it was only ever translated in English. But I don't have it yet, so I'm not sure yet. So I've got at least five more to, uh, to keep me busy for the time being. Intriguing. I look forward to seeing that. And uh, so I was going to ask if you're going to stop once you've exhausted the store of existing translated books, but it looks like that that well is basically bottomless and that you will continue digging and digging. Uh, I'll keep digging for forgotten gems, but you know, I'm counting on you, Yulia, to keep translating, so I keep having books to read. <laughs> we, we are trying, we're doing our best, and there are several of us. Finally, I was wondering... You have posted uh, your own translation of a Slovak fairy tale on your blog. So have you ever been tempted to embark on the translation of a whole book yourself? It, no, honestly, like I said before, my Slovak just it really isn't good enough. And it was always more oral than literary. So even that, that fairy tale, I'm not sure it's all correct. 
there seem to be a lot of unique 19th century words there that I, you know, the internet is amazing, but even the internet does not know archaic Slovak. <laughs> so, so I think it's pretty close, but uh, even for modern Slovak, I, I doubt that I have really the, the, the grasp of the language to, to do justice to it. But I'm really grateful for the translators who are out there who are doing it. Well, you never know. Maybe one day you'll change your mind and uh, there's constant shortage of good translators. So it would be great to... That's true. If you join well, I'm ranks. sure Slovakia... Yeah, well, I'm sure Slovakia is not done with me yet. <laughs> That's good to hear. And thank you very, very, very much for finding the time to come on the podcast and especially doing it earlier than scheduled uh, because we had a bit of an emergency. And uh, it was wonderful talking to you. And I hope uh, we'll stay in touch. And thank you very much again. Oh, I hope so. I hope so too. It's been a real joy. And um, maybe when I publish my own contribution to Slovak literature in English in the form of my memoir, we can talk again. Definitely. Thank you. And All right. bye. All right. Thanks, Julia. Bye.